Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. My aim this morning is to give you the life plan for maximized joy and maximized fruitfulness in the world. Now, I wouldn't dare approach this pulpit and give you a life plan that I created. No, this life plan is the life plan that Jesus used from his birth in a manger to his death on a sinner's cross. This is the life plan that Stephen used who preached so boldly that his preaching was silenced by stones. This was the life plan that George Whitfield used when he declared, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me if by that means the cause of my blessed Jesus may be promoted. This was the life plan of Count Zinzendorf of the Moravians who had a life motto of preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten. This was the life plan of Amy Carmichael who said, in light of what Jesus has done for me on the cross, how could anything I do be counted as sacrifice? The missionary life is a chance to die. It was the life plan of Jim Elliott who wrote before he was speared to death on the beach of Ecuador, consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. And as we're gonna see in Acts chapter 20, this was the life plan of the apostle Paul, who did not account his life of any value nor as precious to himself, if only he could finish his course in the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here's the life plan. It can be summarized in just a few words. Consider your life disposable for Christ rather than dear to yourself. I'll say it again. Consider your life disposable for Christ rather than dear to yourself. Consider, count this 50 to 70 year mist that's ahead of you as something to be given up, disposed of for the sake of Christ and his mission and his glory around the world rather than something to be preserved, kept, maximized, optimized. Count your life dear to yourself and your life will be disposed of in a sea of souls seeking relevance and worldly power and earthly gain. Count your life disposable for Christ and your life will be dear to this world and to the world to come. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're living in an age of social media self-promotion and selfie sharing and self-help techniques. It's the air we breathe. In an atmosphere like this, we can't just assume since we've claimed to give our lives for Jesus that we are living with the life plan that marked Christ and Paul and so many after them. No, we must go to the scriptures, go back to the life plan that Paul lays out in Acts 20 and ask, 
And so I want you to ask yourself as you're here, ask yourself, do you consider your life dear to yourself or disposable for Christ? Do you count your life dear to yourself or disposable for Christ? In Acts chapter 20, Paul is asking himself that question. You see, he had spent two years at Ephesus preaching in a fruitful ministry and in a classic Paul exit, he decides to leave by getting mobbed out of the city. Now he figures as he was there for two years, he'd like a better goodbye than that. So as he circles around Macedonia and Greece and comes to Miletus, he says, hey, let's do this again. Let me bring the Ephesian elders who I spent two years with for one last speech. And that's where we pick it up in verse 22. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. All right, let's pause there. So Paul knows that he's going to Jerusalem. In fact, in the previous chapter, it said that Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's the destination. The spirit has told Paul, hey, you're going to Jerusalem, except he hasn't told him anything else about what's to come, except one thing. Paul, you're going to face imprisonment and affliction. Now, you can imagine if this was you and the Holy Spirit was telling you to go on a mission trip and said, hey, go to this land, I'm not gonna tell you anything about the trip, its success or anything like that. I'm telling you one thing, you're gonna be locked up and people are gonna hate you. Now for all of us, I think our response to the Holy Spirit at that point would go, Holy Spirit, thank you. I am now going to change my travel plans. For Paul, that was not how he responded to the Holy Spirit. And that's what brings us to verse 24. And it's in this verse that we see three characteristics of the disposable life. Three characteristics of a life that is disposable for Christ rather than dear to itself. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The first characteristic we see in verse 24 is a disposable life despises itself. A disposable life despises itself. You see, if Paul had been concerned for the preservation of his life, then knowing that his life may end in Jerusalem would be a warning sign. That would keep him from going. And yet what he says is, nope, I'm going anyway. Why? Because I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. He does not put value into his life. In fact, Paul looks at his life apart from the finishing of his course. He makes a financial estimate of it and says, zero. I don't account my life of any value. He doesn't say I count it less valuable than finishing my course. He says I count it of no value. Paul has come to a despising of his life, a complete renunciation of his life apart from finishing the course that Jesus has given him. He shows that a disposable life must despise itself. And we come to this and say, Paul, in a self-help culture, in an age where we pump up people with flattery, We'd almost like to step into the speech and say, Paul, don't be so bad on yourself. Come on. Did you just see what you did in Ephesus? I mean, that was pretty gnarly. That was great. You've got some value. You've got some uh, contribution to the church. Don't be so hard on yourself. And yet what Paul is doing here, he's not proclaiming an Eeyore mentality 
which is really just self-consumption twisted around. No, he is modeling and replicating what was put forth by Christ. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Probably a little bit more clearly in John 12, 24 through 25, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world, hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. Do you see what Jesus just did there in John 12, 24 through 25? He puts up fruit bearing and hatred of self and says they must go together. They are inextricable. You see, I I believe in the ministry we often are tempted to take the self-help concept of fulfilling your potential. We tell young people and young ministers, go fulfill your potential. And yet, the word potential is most often used of prodigy athletes, prodigy musicians, who go from strength in their youth to strength in their adulthood. I believe the word of fulfilling your potential should be cast out of the ministry altogether and perhaps even in the Christian life because Jesus gave us a metaphor of fruit bearing and he gave it to us for a reason, not to be replaced by anything else. Fruit bearing requires death. For a seed to bear fruit, it must break. That's how fruit bearing comes. Fruit bearing and hatred of self. That's the life that Jesus brings forth. And and if you think about it, this is the way that Jesus bore fruit. Jesus bore fruit by becoming broken bread for us. He bore fruit by becoming poured out wine. He bore fruit by becoming a broken seed. So I want to ask you, will Christ's life be disposable and yours be dear? Will you be a full loaf that molds over time or broken bread that feeds the world? Will you be perfectly round grapes that rot or crushed and squeezed grapes that are poured out for the life of many? Will you be a beautiful seed that spoils on the ground or a broken seed that spreads to the world. What's required is despising your life. That's the first characteristic we see. Now the second characteristic, Paul says, he doesn't count his life as precious to himself, but what does he then find precious? If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's here that we see the second characteristic. If only I may finish my course in the ministry, he delights in sacrifice. A disposable life delights in sacrifice. You see, what's interesting about this scene is that both Paul and several prophets that are coming in the next chapter agree on two things. Agabus and some prophets from Tyre, they want Paul to fulfill his ministry And they know that affliction is coming in Jerusalem. Paul wants to fulfill his ministry, 
And Paul knows that afflictions are coming in Jerusalem. And yet they land on two separate conclusions. The prophets in Tyre and Agabus in chapter 21 believe that since afflictions are coming, that means Paul should have nothing to do with it. And yet Paul sees that the afflictions that are coming are part of the ministry that God has given him and says, I know afflictions are coming, so I'm going. You see, Paul believes, as we should believe, that God's word is not meant to protect us from suffering. God's word is not meant to protect us from suffering. God's word is meant to promise his providence and, pro and uh, presence in the midst of suffering. It's meant to promise his providence and his presence in the midst of suffering. He says, I know suffering is coming, and so I'm going. You may notice a parallel here. In Matthew 16, Peter hears word that Jesus is going to face suffering in Jerusalem. And so what does he say? Just like Agabus, just like the prophets of Tyre, he says, far be that from you, Lord. And then how does Jesus respond? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance for me, on me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, if you do not have room in your theology for God to handcraft with love and mercy a ministry of suffering for you, then you cannot have a disposable life. If you believe, like Agabus and the prophets of Tyre and Peter, that God means for you to avoid suffering, then you can't have a disposable life because your aim will be to avoid it at all costs. But if, like Jesus and like Paul, you believe that God can lovingly and mercifully handcraft suffering for you, if you, like Jesus and Paul, believe that the Spirit ordained suffering of verse 22 and the handcrafted ministry of Jesus by, in verse 24 can be put together, then you will joyfully enter into suffering. A disposable life delights in suffering. You see, when I first came into the ministry and the Lord called me at 17, I wanted to be used by God. And if I have any fellow seminarians in here, you guys, you feel that you want to be used. God, use me. And I honestly, I think looking back, that was a good desire. It's a good desire to want to be used. And yet I must say that my conception of what being used would look like was off. I saw being used like a football coach uses a star quarterback. All right, we have a need. All right, star quarterback, go ahead and head in. Make the play. And I'm going to be used by Jesus, and I'm going to do it for him, and then I'm going to be elevated with him. Yeah, he'll get the glory, but I'm also going to be raised up with him. That was my conception of being used. I didn't understand that God intends for us to be used in a different way to be used like chalk, which is used by being rubbed up against a hard surface in order to paint something beautiful. I didn't know I was gonna be used like a candle is used. Shining brightly, displaying something glorious and yet decreasing with that shining. I didn't know I was gonna be used, not to be too brash, but like toilet paper. Going to the lowest places going to the most vile places to be used up and disposed of. And if that sounds gross, 1 Corinthians probably does too. We are the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. 
If that's foreign to our conception of ministry, it shows that we've adopted the self-help positive talk rather than the ministry of Paul, and myself included. I struggle with that. I continue to struggle with that. And yet the Lord has showed me that this is the way to be used by God. And yet we haven't yet said how it is that Paul delighted in sacrifice. Because we said a disposable life delights in sacrifice. And here we see in Philippians 3, he answers this. But I do not account, uh, but, but, for the, uh, but for the sake of Christ, I've lost all things. Indeed, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul not only endures sacrifice, but he delights in it because he knows, with this, I'm gonna get more of Christ. The more my fingers are pried from the things of the world, all that I lost, I count as actually gain for the sake of Christ, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, and I might share in his sufferings and have fellowship along with him. Paul not only endures sacrifice, but he delights in it, and so it is with all who have a disposable life. See, a disposable life despises itself. A disposable life delights in sacrifice, in a disposable life. Here we see at the last verse, he says, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul uses the word gospel 74 times in his writings, 74 times. Now, 69 of those times, he uses the word gospel. He either says gospel of Christ or gospel of God or uh, some reference to the divine. There's only five times out of 74 that Paul uses a different word to describe the gospel. And each time he does it, he does it for a very specific reason. In Ephesians uh, 1 verse 13, he says the gospel of your salvation when he intends to talk about the way that believers are saved in Christ. In Ephesians 6.15, he says the gospel of peace when he's talking about our role as ministers of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he talks about the gospel of the glory of Christ when he's talking about Jesus' ability to break through every form of darkness to save his people. And here we come. Paul is facing a crossroads in his life. He knows what's coming in Jerusalem. It's almost as if he can already feel the rod on his back. He can already hear the clink of the prison bars shutting. And you've got to believe he's asking in this time, is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep going even though I know what's coming? And yet in this moment... What is on Paul's mind? The gospel of the grace of God. It's the only time Paul uses it. In all the New Testament, the gospel of grace. This shows us something here. You cannot understand the Paul of Acts 20 without understanding the persecutor of Acts 9. You see, we're used to this story. We hear it all the time. And yet we need to pause and think about it, the craziness of it. Paul, on his way in Damascus Road, he's going to persecute Jesus' people. That's the, he's not going on vacation. He's not going for another reason. He's only going to go against Jesus. That's the reason he's going. And Jesus shows up on the road. 
I mean, if, if you're Jesus there, it, how tempted are you to go, gotcha, wrath. Oh, you thought you were following God zealously. Boom, I'm the son of God. You got it all wrong. You got to believe he's tempted to do that. And would that not elevate him more in our earthly minds? But no, he does something far greater. Jesus meets the persecutor. He meets the man sent to kill Christians, not with a thunderbolt of wrath, not with a boom of condemnation, but with something far more explosive. He meets Paul with his grace. I'm yours, you're mine, go. I'm gonna send you, I'm gonna show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. He meets him with an explosion of grace. He takes his enemy and he makes him a son. He takes his opposer and makes him his main promoter. This is how Jesus works. And we must never forget it. The most glorious aspect of our risen Christ is that he gives grace to sinners. This is what he did for me. It was only seven years ago that on my high school, I stood on a stage like this and I did a funny skit pretending to be God for 15 minutes, mocking God. I saw women as objects to be used for my own pleasure rather than as precious image bearers. I spread a culture in my high school for sure, a culture of drugs and partying and alcohol. I did everything I could to push out the light. I was disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though I knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die and only did them but give approval, wide approval to those who practice them. That was me. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He ruined me. He wrecked me, not with his wrath, not with his condemnation, but with something far more explosive. He showed up with his grace, saying, I'm yours, you're mine. Look at your sin. Yes, it was the sin that pierced me to the cross. Look at your blasphemy. Yes, it was the crown on my head. Look at your mocking. Yes, you are joining with the crowd. And yet come to me, I'm calling you to myself by grace. That ruins, that'll ruin. You show people and sinners the grace of Christ that is available to anyone who would come, no matter how far, no matter how much they mock, no matter how much they deny the existence of God, you lift up the grace of Damascus Road. That'll wreck people. That's our Jesus. That is glorious. That's why he purposed everything in his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1. This is who we serve. This is what should get us excited about ministry. We have a gospel of grace. You see, the third characteristic of a disposable life is a disposable life is dominated by grace. That's what we see with Paul dominated by grace. 
A disposable life despises itself. A disposable life delights in sacrifice. And a disposable life is dominated by grace. I struggled with that word, dominated. Shouldn't I use something like driven, motivated, influenced by grace? Dominated seems a little bit harsh. And yet when I look at the life of Paul and I look at the radical seemingly nonsense obedience of God's people throughout the ages, when I look at the wreckage, the glorious wreckage that grace has wrought throughout church history, I can choose no other word, dominated by grace. For the love of Christ controls us. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, wreckage. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is grace, controls us. It came to me and did what nothing else could do. That's grace. I could do no other after grace came to me. The grace of God dominates. It creates a disposable life. That's why in Paul's life and Jim Elliott's life and George Whitfield's life and Lottie Moon's life and Amy Carmichael's life, he's gonna get the glory because from beginning to end, it was his grace that began it, fueled it, dominated it. He's gonna get the glory. Katie Davis, um, the American missionary to Uganda was talking to one of her 13 adopted children from Uganda and the little girl, as you've probably maybe experienced talking to children, asked a, a simple question. She asked her mom, Mommy, if I ask Jesus into my heart, will I explode? And now Katie Davis, wanting to you know, calm her child's fears, quickly said, no, no, no. And then she thought about it for a second. And she changed her mind. Yes, sweetie. If you ask Jesus into your heart, you will explode. This is the grace of God. You follow Jesus, you receive this grace, then you are going to explode all the way to the end of the earth. Grace explodes us. It makes us unable to not talk about Jesus, go for Jesus, lay down our lives for Jesus. You can't encounter grace without exploding. You can't. That's what grace does. See, grace is not a convenient sparkler that we carry on as an accessory in the Christian life. Grace is explosive TNT that we stand on from now through eternity. That's what grace is. Grace makes you explode. Grace creates a disposable life because grace dominates. Maybe you're not there. Perhaps you still find your life dear to yourself because you don't find grace dear. Perhaps you're struggling with this of being disposable for Christ and I'd say it's probably because you don't find grace dear enough. What I'd encourage you brother, sister, hearing this is go back. Go back to the cross of Christ and see him again, but see your sin holding him there. 
Remember your sin that pierced him. Remember your blasphemy, your persecution, your running away, your zeal in your own way against the way of God. Go back for yourself, not for another in this moment. Right now, go back for yourself and remember the cross of Christ and see you holding him there. Go back to Jesus' redemption. The day you heard, child, you're mine. And this grace that I'm bringing you in with is going to be the grace that keeps you. Go back. Brother and sister, go back to the darkness of Damascus Road, and then you will remember the blinding light of Christ. Go back. See your sin in all its darkness, and then you'll see Jesus in all of his glory. Here we've seen that a disposable life for Christ has three characteristics. A disposable life despises itself, a disposable life delights in sacrifice, and a disposable life is dominated by grace. John G. Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides, was uh, planning his travels and he was thinking about going to the New Hebrides and it was a, a friend, Mr. Dixon, who told him, don't go to the New Hebrides, you will be eaten by cannibals. You may give your friend that advice too if they're going to a cannibal infested village. Don't go, you're gonna be eaten by cannibals. How does John G. Patton respond? He says, Mr. Dixon, you are very advanced in years now and your prospect is soon to be laid into the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You see, we began this sermon with a question. Do you consider your life dear to yourself or disposable for Christ? But when you come to think about it, that's not really the question at all, is it? You are going to be disposed of for something. The question is for what? Will you be disposed for riches and fame and earthly gain? And Instagram followers? And a life of constantly increasing, or like John the Baptist, will you understand that in order for Christ to increase, you must decrease on earth? Will you be disposed of for his sake? Will it be riches, fame, or worms, or will it be for Christ? It's coming for us. So my charge to you this morning is, be disposable for the name of Christ. Let that be your life plan, your life foundation, is I don't consider my life of any value nor as precious to myself. I don't. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Make that your life plan. Be disposable for Christ. Despise your life for Christ's sake because his steadfast love will always preserve you. Delight in sacrifice because the one who sacrificed it all will never leave you or forsake you. Be dominated by grace because while every earthly thing will fade away and every earthly praise will be silenced, 
God's grace and his mercy are going to endure forever. Be disposable for the sake of Christ. For the one who gave it all will never dispose of you. And there is coming a day soon when you will see him, this glorious savior who dominates us by grace, who loved himself and gave himself for us. One day soon you will see him face to face. Until that day, let's pray. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Jesus, you are worthy of all honor and glory and power and wealth and wisdom. Holy Spirit, you have renewed us. You have given us a new heart. Oh God, you are treasure. You are our portion. You are our praise and you are our inheritance. And so Lord, I pray that in this room even, you would give us a renewed sense of what it means to have you, to possess you. And may this all-consuming knowledge of what it means to be yours, eternally yours, propel us toward a life of disposability for your sake, Lord. Jesus, receive all glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.